It happens in the blink of an eye. It felt like we just dropped out of the sky and hit the ground. Immediately inside the plane, total chaos. A moment in time that changes your life forever. When you see the pictures of the car, I don't see how anyone could survive. Often these moments are just the beginning of a new world for the people who experience them. And you know the outcome is going to be drastic, but yet you still know that you have to do it. Each episode of Just a Moment examines someone's life-changing experience and explores how they navigated through that moment to discover a new normal. And I see beauty now. This is me. I promise you will hear compelling, raw stories that may help you navigate through your own life's journey, if you'll give me just a moment. Hi everyone and welcome to Just a Moment. We start this episode with a question. What would you do if you were told you had 10 minutes to live? Who would you call? What would you say? How would you say it? That's the moment my friend Arden Brion had to face in 2013. And his story was so impactful to me that I have shared it with others. And in fact, it was part of the inspiration for the theme of this podcast, Just a Moment. There are insights for all of us from Arden's brush with death. He made some very purposeful decisions in that high pressure moment and has shared his story hoping to take away the taboo around end-of-life conversations and decisions. There's also an important lesson on leadership here. Arden was working in sales with a business strategy consulting company called Root, headquartered in Sylvania, Ohio. His work and the culture created at Root is an important part of the story and where we begin our conversation with Arden. I... um was in sales, I loved, so I sold the consulting engagements, focused on the healthcare field. And you loved your job? Loved it. What was it about Root that made you love walking in there every day? It was a whole different language. It was so contrarian to the way that most consulting companies approach strategy, uh, which is often top-down. And this whole idea that Root, I think, was so powerful in was democratizing or making strategy accessible to everyone. We helped leaders see that their customers for strategic understanding and execution were their people. And if they didn't treat their people in the same way that they try to treat their customers, if they didn't see them that way, strategy, understanding, and execution would continue to be elusive and fragmented. So you traveled quite a bit with Mm -hmm. your job going out to sell the root strategy and the root products to people, right? Yes. And and, uh, Chris, the interesting thing is that root's language was universal. It worked in every country. Uh, And root was, you know, whether we're in Germany uh, or Spain or Paris uh, or U.S., the same principles were and the same problems uh, existed is helping leaders see at their level a common vision among the leadership and then helping them translate that down through the rest of the organization by asking instead of telling and that was what leaders found so hard and so fascinating was that instead of telling they knew that they needed to ask the questions that allowed people to come to the conclusions so the magic phrase I think for Root was, again, people tolerate the directives and conclusions of leaders, but act on their own. So in January of 2013, uh, you packed your bags as you do many times and you headed to Wilmington, Delaware. Yes. To meet a client there. Yes. And there were, uh, you know, it was a pharma company and uh, there were about um, 10, 12 people in the room and I was in the middle of my presentation. And what happened? I just felt this explosion um, in my chest, uh, shot up into my head. I thought I was going to black out. Um, and it was very painful. Um, I sat down and I was still had my uh, able to retain my composure. But I sat down and they placed me down on the floor. I said, excuse me, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. 
So could you please call 911? So they called 911, called their own nurses. Uh, and then I asked them to call my wife and the company. And the premise being, I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, as they wheeled me out, I was still um, uh, engaged enough to say from the stretcher, I, I hope you'll invite me back <laughs> to finish. Isn't that funny? The things that in the middle yeah. of a health crisis, the things that, you know, we'll say or, uh, you know, trying to make other people comfortable around a very uncomfortable situation yeah. even, Arden, is funny. So you got to the hospital in Wilmington. Was it in Wilmington? Yes, in Wilmington. And um, you thought you were having a heart attack, and they had a cardiac care unit there. Yes. So you felt like you were in good hands. Yes, they had a vascular and heart center. I thought I was in good hands, and they proceeded to uh, rule out a heart attack. Um, and when I told them that I had no feeling um, on in my left leg, they changed their uh, process immediately, and the doctor ordered a CAT scan for my head and my heart and my chest. And that's when I came back and realized when they brought me back to the ER room, I just realized that the mood had changed. This you was, saw the doctor and nurses yes. had changed yes. towards you. It, yes. Tell me in what way. They, they, they looked very worried. And um, uh, as, I, as I saw that, we had just, at root, had completed an engagement um, on end-of-life conversations, how to help physicians have end-of-life conversations, how to motivate them to have end-of-life conversations, because physicians, uh, our research showed that physicians were reluctant to have those uh, conversations. And... Uh, so I looked at the doctor and said, you know, doctor, uh, we've just done a end-of-life conversation module. Please, please tell me the tr truth. Don't worry about holding anything back. And that's when she looked at me and said, uh, Mr. Brian, and I remember this because she said it three times, you're a very, very, very sick man. And she proceeded to tell me that I had... Uh, an acute aortic dissection, and that uh, unfortunately, and then she told me what that meant, was that blood flow uh, to the rest of my body uh, was compromised. And uh, So in an aortic dissection, is your aorta literally splitting apart? Is that what is happening there, or what, what does that mean? Yes, there are... Um, and again, I learned this later. Yeah. But there are there are three layers within the aorta, and what happened in this one's is that the uh, inner layer uh, split and allowed the blood to go down uh, and tear the layer all the way down uh, mm -hmm. up my arch, all the way down my aorta, and all the way down the leg. So the aorta's ability to distribute now was split. And at that time, nothing had broken, so I wasn't bleeding out. But clearly, uh, it was compromised because of the tear that started from uh, my heart all the way up and uh, down the aorta. So she said, what, what were they able to do for you? What did she tell you? She said, you? We, could, we can't help you here, but um, I'm going, I've called uh, UPenn where they um, specialize in this, and there'll be a helicopter in 20, 25 minutes here, pick you up. So they had to actually put me in an ambulance and go out to a football field, stadium, uh, in a high school where the helicopter landed mm -hmm. and they placed me in there. Before that happened, she basically told you she was not confident that you were going to make it even until the helicopter got there, correct? What, did, what was she telling you about? Well, she, she was still reserved. She said, she said that uh, blood flow to my rest of my body had been compromised. And I said, immediately I cut her off and I said, well, I've got my own end-of-life conversations to have. Should I, uh, when should I have them? And she said, if I were you, I would have make them right now. 
that's when I knew that there was an urgency in her voice. And then two nurses came up to me, asked me if I needed, if I wanted a priest. So immediately it became to be clear to me that I was in a dying mode. Uh, and when I said no, they came back and they said, uh, may we pray with you? So they each got on uh, each side of my, uh, of me and they held my hand and they prayed for healing. They prayed for comfort. Um, and uh, that's when I knew that um, uh, I was gonna die. In that moment, that act of kindness by those health personnel there at the hospital and offering to pray with you, did that bring you comfort? Did that help you? It did, and knowing how awkward many health systems feel about bringing spirituality into the workplace. Um, I was glad that uh, they did that, um, and it gave me a lot of comfort. It also helped me realize that uh, uh, I needed my own spiritual strength. So, strange as it may sound, I prayed to God that he would give me strength and clarity in my thinking, because I knew that uh, I assumed that I would die any minute. When I look back at the um, statistics at the time, Chris, over 50% of patients that have a, uh, an, an, an acute aortic dissection don't make it to the hospital. And those that make it there are often misdiagnosed. Um, and I think about, I learned later that John Ritter, it's what happened to him, uh, as I understand from the articles. People were, it presents like a heart attack, but um, it was not. You prayed with the two people at the hospital, asked for clarity, asked for strength, and then you started making phone calls. I did. And um, this is where I, I really got to uh, admire the technology of Apple because I, luckily I had my faves uh, favorites, and I was able to uh, dial. But I think, Chris, the, the important thing is after I prayed, I got a very strong sense of purpose. And that purpose was that I needed to die well. And so, you know, I, the, the question that I've asked is, when you know you have limited time, who do you call, what do you say, and how do you say it? And the 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 whole uh, uh, purpose of dying well, making sure that my family's remembrances of me were pleasant and comforting, uh, just took over. And so I, I became very lucid. And as uh, I was dialing, I was able to kind of have a communication formula. You know, honey, I'm, I'm at XYZ Hospital. I've got been diagnosed with this. I'm dying. We don't have much time. Let me tell you a few things, right? And those were the those was kind of the formula that I started with the, with my wife. And uh, you know, at that time, she had already been contacted by uh, our company, and uh, so she was crying. And I said, she said, where where do I fly into? And I said, I don't know. Um, if you'd fly into uh, Philadelphia, I don't know which hospital I'll be in. So at any rate, we talked about that. And one of the things that we did when I was traveling, Chris, is we actually talked more when I was traveling than <laughs> <laughs> we did when I was not. So there was no question in her, in her mind uh, about our love. Um, we realized that, uh, I realized that once uh, I, I had told her uh, a few things that she needed to do that actually she would be better off uh, 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 after I died than, than she would be, but she wasn't buying the financial <laughs> <laughs> aspect of that. After we got done, um, she agreed that I needed to talk to the kids and the grandkids. And uh, luckily, uh, everyone was home when I called. So it's mm -hmm. uh, three in the afternoon. What a blessing. Yeah. 
And so I called Dave and Karen and I said, this is dead. And they had also been contacted by Yvonne with a uh, notification earlier. So I said, put me on speaker. Um, this is dad and this is Gappa. Uh-huh. And I said, here's what's going on. And, uh, you know, we talked about, uh, I was uh, sorry, I was crying too, that I wasn't going to be able to be at their graduations and all those things that you say. And uh, then I went to my son and daughter-in-law in Florida with the same conversation. And, and then I thought about work. And interestingly enough, Jim Howden and Rich Behrens came to mind. So how uh, strange that was, I couldn't get a hold of them, but I was able to leave voicemail messages. And in this process, part of the f- communication formula that I, I, I found myself in, Chris, was the sense of thanking people for their love. And so I, I, uh, the, the phone calls were messages about what was happening, but, but also very much how grateful I was for all the love that I had received. And similarly, when it went to work, I also uh, left message for Rich and Jim and talked about how grateful I was for the opportunity to work for such a great company uh, as Root. You had been there 13 years, so you had spent a good deal of time there by, by that time. But I'm not sure I know anyone else, Arden, that might call work as one of their final phone calls. I think that's remarkable. So tell me like, why that was important to you. Yeah, you know, other people have said that as well, Chris. And I think what was important to me is, was was um, work, particularly the leadership at Root, um, had created a very uh, close family, and I felt like part of the family. So mm-hmm. I didn't see it as work, but I saw them as part of the family. Mm-hmm. So they were, uh, it was very natural for me to, to think of them that way and to call them as part of my family. You were alone when this happened to you. So you're in this hospital, and although you're able to make phone calls, I'm curious about were you lonely and were you afraid to be there alone and die alone? I was. Um, after I got through the phone calls, the helicopter got there. I said goodbye to the staff and thanked them. You know, Chris, what was so different about this experience was that my mind was very sharp. Uh, I thought I would be in panic, but my mind was crystal clear. So I attribute that to God answering my prayer about clarity and, and strength because I needed to make some decisions. So I found, I found my mind very clear and uh, I thanked the uh, people at uh, St. Francis, um, got into the helicopter and I started feeling lonely and alone once um, we were flying back to, flying to Philadelphia. It was dark. Uh, we were approaching Philadelphia, uh, a city that I had flown into many times, and I realized there that I was probably going to die uh, alone. And then, in wallowing in my self pity, I just realized that I had one more chance for my family to see me um, in good spirit. So I, again, took my phone out and I gave it to the paramedic and I said, can you do a video here? Because uh, I wanted my family to see me in good spirits. And um, I don't know whether you th- that video showed up. Uh, I was able to do sign, something I had learned in the third grade, and I signed, I love you. Uh, and uh, that's what I was trying to communicate and I wanted them to see that I was not uh, in panic, that I was not in fear, but th- that I was um, secure and uh, grateful. So I found the conversations, Chris, to be very liberating 
because they weren't conversations of regret. They were conversations of gratitude. I, you said that. You wrote something for the Cleveland Clinic, and you said, I found it liberating to be grateful when dying. Yeah. And I, your story has resonated and impacted me so incredibly, Arden, over the years since I've known you. And, and that message right there, to be in those moments where you didn't know what was going to happen and have no regrets had to feel so good. You lived the life you wanted to live. I did. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that I think God gave me when I prayed for clarity and strength was, I think, the sense of gratitude, Chris, because that's, that sense of gratitude helped my family also a, feel appreciated and know that um, we, we, were, we were still together and grateful. There were, there were no apologies, no crying that was, you know, regretting. This was all about a, uh, gratitude for, for grateful living. Yeah. Uh, and similarly with, with uh, my, con- my voicemail messages to Jim and Ruth. You mentioned the courage. You wanted them to see you, you described as dying well and dying with courage. Where did that come from in that moment? I, it would be so natural to be scared. Yes, yes. In fact, I talked, um, I, I have an idea. I think that came from God. I think it was a direct answer to my prayer for clarity and courage, um, uh, but particularly um, strength mm-hmm. and uh, I've had anesthesiologists who have seen similar cases uh, in the operating room and uh, have known other patients and they said that basically uh, my composure was very different from what they had seen before because others were in panic so I don't know where it came from I'm, no- I'm normally a very uh, animated and excited um, person and for some reason God gave me strength and calmness to be able to talk clearly to everyone um, that we spoke to. You are a person of faith. Uh, Did you believe that there was something for you after your dying? Uh, Did you have faith that this was not the end for you? And was that part of your thinking at that time? Yes, and, and you know, Chris, it, it's it's interesting that my my faith in my salvation that God had already saved me um, had been growing because um, you know there's always the question about uh, are we only as good as our last act, right? Mm-hmm. And so the whole issue about uh, faith that I was able to keep clear was the idea that once I believed in Jesus, my salvation was clear. And even though I was a sinful person, uh, that God had covered that. And so I never doubted the uh, assurance that when we believe we have eternal life. That was always very clear in my mind. And you know, the book of John is clear with that. So the idea that I would wonder about my salvation was not there. I was clear on it, not because I'm a good person, but because of God's grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, because certainly, if I, it was based on me, uh, I wouldn't be as comfortable about that salvation. Was there any worry at all about Yvonne, about your kids, about your grandkids? I know there was, I'm sorry, I won't see this X, Y, and Z, but but in those moments, do you worry? I did. I worried about not being there for them at the major milestones. Um, you know, I think the whole idea is we think about growing old together, and I worried that I wasn't going to be able to do that with my wife. But I also worried that um, as time went on, I would just become a memory. And, uh, mm. yeah. So uh, my worry was of being forgotten after time. 
when you think about your legacy and you had this opportunity, right, to think about it in a little bit of a different way now after going through that experience. But if something like that happened to you again in those few minutes that you had, would you still have those worries? Do you feel like your legacy is a little more intact in your mind? Because I probably could have told you what your legacy was, you know, uh, 10 years ago when this happened. But I'm just wondering if you have gotten there. Well, I think, you know, in terms of legacy, I think that assumes that a big assumption is that whatever we're going to leave is good uh, in terms of uh, reputation. I wish I could be better. Uh, I wish I could be kinder. Uh, I wish the fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit would be more uh, accessible to me. And in that way, um, my legacy is worried that uh, I have not, that I am not as as kind and gentle and gracious an individual as as I would want to be. So I I pray for for the fruit of the spirit uh, to become more evident in my life. Let's go back to you in the helicopter, and I have seen that video, and it brings everyone to tears, I know, when they see it, knowing in that moment that you had no idea if that would be the last time you would communicate with somebody like that. You get to the hospital in Philadelphia, and they tell you what? Are they ready for you? You're about to go into surgery? Well, having been uh, associated or understanding about health systems, I thought for sure that I would go from ER, uh, from St. Francis to ER at um, uh, UPenn. And what I found is we just bypassed ER. So apparently, uh, a kind of a humorous concept, as we, were, as we bypassed ER, it dawned on me that these guys seemed, who were taking me from the helicopter, seemed lost. And what had happened was they were having some construction and they were having to find, but they took me directly to OR and OR team was, was very ready for me. So when they got there, they proceeded to take my ring off and everything else. And I wanted to be clear uh, before they did anything else because at the top of my mind, Chris, was knowing that my dad had died of a brain aneurysm. So, uh, you know, in a very straight tone, I remember I asked, who's in charge here? You know, and uh, they, they looked up and the surgeon said, I am, doctor decided da 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 da. I said, well, I wanna issue a do not resuscitate order. And what I found so uh, affirming there was they didn't dismiss me. They leaned forward and he says, tell me more. And uh, I said, if blood flow to my brain is interrupted by more than five minutes. I don't want to be uh, resuscitated because it seems to me I don't want to be brain dead. And he said, well, may I ask, very gentle, very kind, not condescending tone, he asked, uh, where did you get your five-minute limitation? And I couldn't quote any journal articles. I said, I just assumed that that was the limitation by which the a brain begins to atrophy um, or decline after not receiving any blood during that time. So he proceeded to say, he said, I'd like you to extend your, your uh, time limit to, and he went up by five minute increments, uh, and we got up to 35 minutes. And I, I then questioned him, I said, what's your basis for your recommendation? And as, as, as softly, and as assuredly as, as I could hear, he said, because we're a really good year. And that, that was enough. And I said, okay, I want everyone to understand that I have changed and revoked my earlier. <laughs> and now Dr. Desai is at 35. And the minutes that I saw um, was that I think he took 31 minutes. Because past 30 minutes, the risks just jump. Go up. Yeah. Yeah. They put you out to do the surgery... And those honest-to-goodness last moments that your eyes are open before the anesthesia kicks in, Arden, do you remember 
those moments and what you were thinking because you had to be thinking, I'm, this may be the last thing that I ever see in my life, right? You weren't confident that they were going to be able to bring you back. No. Um, I didn't think about those, Chris. Uh, yes, I assumed that uh, I was going to die. Uh, and one of the things that I kept going through is, did I cover what I needed to cover mm-hmm. in my conversations with my family? And at that point, I just let it go. Were you still in pain? No. No. So it was just the kind of mental and emotional part of this that was there right until the anesthesia took over for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was, you know, there was some um, so, some pain in the helicopter, but not, I mean, not not any pain that was dominating. So, yeah, it was... Just the whole issue. It was more mental than anything. And you woke up in the ICU. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and you are one of a very low percentage of people that actually are able to survive an aortic dissection. So when you woke up, when, you're, when you, you opened your eyes, what did you think? Did you hear first? Did you see? What were you thinking when you woke up? I, I saw my family around my bed uh, in the they ICU. They had made it. They had made it. Mm-hmm. My wife had flown in uh, from Toledo. Uh, my son-in-law and daughter and grandkids had driven uh, from Maryland, and, and uh, they had brought uh, Dave's dad and his mom with them, and I saw them there. And Dave... Um, whispered something to me because one of the things that they had seen uh, was on their way up. They had seen what they saw as a sign that I would be living and it said trust. They had been talking about the need to trust God. And so uh, when Dave kind of whispered in my ear, he says, we asked God to save you and he did, you know. Oh my gosh. We trusted God to do that. It had to be just a moment of triumph to even just be able to see them and feel them and have them there with you in that moment, even not knowing, you know, was the surgery completely successful, any of that stuff, but just having them there. What did their presence mean to you right then? First, I, I, I knew that I at least was had enough um, mental facilities to recognize all of them, and to talk to them. So the fact that I woke up to their faces was so comforting to me. And I went on, my son who was driving and his, his family were driving from Florida, hadn't gotten there yet, but they got in there uh, shortly after. And then I saw them soon um, then as well. So the whole idea that my whole family was around me was very comforting. Yeah. Yeah. And that I was now able to have uh, living conversations with them. And what did the doctor tell you? Were they able to completely fix what the problem was? Well, uh, he didn't tell me then, but he told me on, on discharge that uh, I only, when he got me, he said, Arden, it was only a matter of minutes. So I did what I could. Uh, and we may have to see each other again in a few years, but I think I did what I could, and he put me on a follow-up program, Mm -hmm. and I had a subsequent surgery um, after that in 2017 to do further repair. Did he do it, the same guy? Yes. Yes. So you went back to Philadelphia? Was he still there? Yeah, Yeah, I went back every four months for follow-up. Wow. And uh, he was... He said, probably in another five years, Arden, uh, this was in 2017, he said, a lot of what you went through will be able to do with less uh, invasive methods, mm. you know, than what we had to go through. Because that meant um, I had open heart twice. Yeah. yeah. 
And technology is just amazing, isn't it? it you is. just like hope you can hold on until the next thing comes out sometimes when you hear a diagnosis or something. But you have, what was your recovery like after that? Um, Initially in 2013. It was, it was. How long were you in the hospital? Nine days. And uh, I was, uh, I think my recovery in 2013 surprisingly was much faster than my recovery in 2017. I was, you know, older, and I attribute that to the slower recovery. I, I had wanted to make sure that at root, I could get back to work uh, in the same way that they had a um, maternal uh, time off. I wanted to make sure that I could get back at that time. So uh, I got back to work and um, my recovery was very good. Thank you. Got to travel and continue doing that. There's some rehab involved after you have an open heart surgery like that. You went, did you go through that here in Toledo yes. after you came back? Yes. And then weeks later, we're able to get back to work yes. at Root. Just in the weeks, months, you know, years after the initial incident, Arden, were there lessons that you brought out of this with you? If I may, uh, quite a few lessons. F first lesson was really all about uh, health care. And, you know, we hear all about how, how really broken health care is. But I think that the, the point in time and the emergency that I had showed, showed me health care at its best. For all the things to work together that did, that allowed me to get a diagnosis, to be released, um, and to be life flighted directly into UPenn. Those are all process and procedures that had been worked out, and the team was just excellent. So I look at that. One of the key things I learned, Chris, was how much gratitude is, 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 is helpful um, in recovery. Mm. So one of the things uh, became very clear to me was to show appreciation to everyone who took care of me um, during that time. And Did you I, go back to Wilmington? Uh, well, first I thanked them when I was there. Yes. Uh, and so that the gratitude was, was during those two weeks, right? Yeah. But I actually, when I was discharged, I went over to uh, drove down to Wilmington mm -hmm. and uh, walked into ER there and the nurses who recognized me shouted and came running towards <laughs> me. <laughs> and it's like they took me uh, into, luckily there was nothing going on, so they took me, excuse me, into the room where they thought I was going to die and the uh, ER director came down they had what I would consider a party, uh, <laughs> and they designated me as the miracle of St. Francis. In their minds, they were so sure that I was going to die that actually the two nurses that prayed with me asked me if I had seen God. Uh, that's how sure they were that I was going to die. Wow. And they connected me with my uh, ER physician, so it was, a, it was a time of celebration. And what drove that, Chris, I remember the parable in, uh, in the Bible or the story in the Bible about the 10 lepers who Jesus healed and only one came back to say thank you. Yeah. So I wanted them to know that their care and respect for spirituality um, was well uh, appreciated and I wanted to tell them that, that uh, thank you. And it worked. It worked. Here you are, right? Yeah. <laughs> Walking back through the door. Um, they probably had been wondering, you know, and maybe even calling to try to check on you um, themselves when they were there. You talked a lot about um, their empathy. What did you learn about empathy? That I tried to see the world through their eyes because, uh, and what was interesting, this, this didn't come to me just uh, intuitively, we had been working with Cleveland Clinic mm -hmm. on the patient experience, and empathy was one of the key themes mm -hmm. there. And so I was able to use that filter to try to uh, better understand what that meant from a patient standpoint. 
and it's, it's understanding how hard the nurses worked. For example, um, my veins were very difficult to find. And so whenever uh, they would need to insert a needle, it was high stress, so much so that uh, several um, would, would just be so worried that they couldn't find. And I told them when, they, when I just realized that was happening, I said, look, I just want you to know, I know you want to get it the first time, but I just want you to know that you can try as many times as you want and I'm okay. I'm not going to, you know, and, and things like that. That helped me understand empathy because mm-hmm. I empathized with how hard they were trying to do, trying to work to make sure that they could do it right. And what you found was the more that you empathized, the more empathy you received back from them, right? I, I think so. I, yeah. I, I believe that it helped their discretionary efforts because they felt appreciated and understood. And so um, I believe that it added to the quality of the care I received, which was already excellent. But there's, there was just a little bit more. Um, some nurses came to see me on their day off, um, which, which I attribute to their, their sense that they were not only appreciated, but I could empathize with them as well. And I think a lot of times, too, especially in a career like that, you don't get a lot of time to just celebrate the successes, right? Because you're always moving on to the next person. That's right. So for them to be able to hear it from you, to take a moment to really say, wow, we did something miraculous here, and just be able to sit in that for a moment, um, probably gives them such good feelings about what they're doing and gives them a moment to recognize the impact that they have on people. Uh, I think you're absolutely right, Chris, because lying in ICU and seeing how their jobs, that's a hard, hard job uh, to be in nursing. And, uh, you know, so I think that that gave me a perspective that I probably would never have had had I not been through the entire process. A lot of times in my podcast episodes, there will be lessons learned and also maybe new purpose found through a moment of tragedy or a moment like you've been through. I can imagine if this is me, I might be saying, why did I survive? Mm -hmm. Do you ask that question and think about purpose a lot or a lot more now since this happened? I do. Um, And I ask that, I think about that question because I know many people um, who didn't survive, mm-hmm. um, you know, their respective illnesses. And so I ask myself, why me? And, you know, a traditional response is God has something more for you. Um, and maybe what he has more for me is, um, you know, to, to just share a story of his grace And I think the only way I can answer that, Chris, is that I survived because of God's grace. Uh, Wasn't anything related to to me. And I would like to think that, but that's the whole issue of grace, right? It's undeserved. And um, that's what I feel that this story is all about, is I got God's undeserved grace. A couple of the other lessons that I think, uh, you know, which focused on the patient experience, there are lessons that I think I also learned about how do you create, with respect to work, as a leader, um, how do you create an environment where people who come to their deathbeds will put you on their short list? Mm. And so I mean, that, that was remarkable that you called yeah. Jim. Yeah. And... and when I couldn't talk to him, I talked to other people at Root. Mm-hmm. So they were on my mind as, as a way of, again, expressing appreciation. So I think that spoke to me about the sense of family that they had created. Um, and um, that was a lesson learned. And one of the other lessons that I think I've been able to learn a result of that and share has been the whole idea about 
having end of life conversations. Mm-hmm. That they're not they're not as difficult uh, as we make them out to be. I think the idea that telling someone that they're going to die is a gift in a way that uh, I was never able to do that with my experience with my parents. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I could never talk about uh, my mother who had terminal cancer. I could never talk to her about death. Uh, I think I'm better able to do that now. And it's so important for all of us, right? Because there are so many things you want to make sure you get the chance to say, first of all. Secondly, to have a good understanding so that everybody's on the same page about the path that you intend to follow and, you know, need support getting down that path. So those end-of-life conversations um, are really important Um, and hopefully conversations that people can have before you get to the point where you were, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think another lesson, Chris, was was the power of prayer. Mm-hmm. Now, what what I experienced here was the power of the networks, uh, the social media. Within you know minutes of this happening, through Root, through our children's social network, through churches and everything else, there were hundreds of people praying, mm-hmm. and when once. You know, I think about that. I think the whole power of the community of people praying for you is is an experience that is um, just knowing that at that point in time there were people lifting us up to God uh, was very powerful for me. Did your experience change anything major in your life? Did you make any major changes? Um, based on what happened to you and the fact that you survived it? Yeah, I think I think I have, Chris, and the changes are looking for the extraordinary moments in everyday life. And instead of looking for the big, you know, one of the things I had asked my wife, assuming that what she wanted from me were when I came home from trips, I would... Um, take her to dinner and do all these things. So I, I, I remember the question, you know, just ask. So I asked her, what would make you happy? And she said, mowing the lawn with me. So I bought a lawnmower and we do that together. So th- that's what I mean about the ordinary moments. Yes. Yeah. That is really a gift in, in a way, isn't it? To kind of teeter there on the brink of death and come back. It is. And I realize that, uh, you know, I can say with conviction that I believe God orchestrated all the events and not only just the medical events, but everything was orchestrated to show his grace and his glory. And uh, that I am a example of certainly his grace. And I hope um, his glory shines through because I know there there are things that are not explainable that happen. And I believe that that happened in my case. I, I definitely think of you as a miracle. I think what happened to you is miraculous. And um, I, I, you know, we... We ask for miracles and we see them every day and sometimes we don't take as much notice as we should, but um, your story is truly incredible. And it really could happen to any one of us. So I guess from the standpoint of, you know, me walking out the door and having a similar experience to you, do you have any words to share with people who are just going about their life like you were in 2013 before you went on that trip and what we maybe should be giving some thought to. Yeah, I think there's something within us that really wants to say goodbye well. If you remember, there's a scene in the movie um, which I saw, um, the movie Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks, Mm -hmm. 
where at the moment that Tom Hanks knew that he was facing imminent death, he was scrambling for a piece of paper to write to his family. So I think there's something that, that you know, is innate with us to want to say goodbye well uh, and to assure family. So I, I, I think those questions that still haunt me and, and are, A, if you know that you only have moments to live, who would you call and what would you say? And, and, and what I learned was, and how would you say it? You know, would you be weeping um, and, uh, you know, in terror? Or will you be calm and assuring that because of our faith, we believe that th we'll see each other again uh, and that we are saved and that we are uh, in God's hands? What a gift to get a second chance. Arden's story reminds us how fragile life is. On an ordinary day, on an ordinary sales trip, his life changed forever. And in sharing his story, he has changed other people's lives as well. How extraordinary that after he reached his wife and kids, his very next call was to his boss, to thank him for letting him be part of such a visionary company. I wonder how many bosses would be on a short list like that in a moment of crisis. I loved Arden's purposeful decisions and his courage to face what he thought was the end of his life. He had no regrets except that he wished for more time. So again, if you were told you had 10 minutes to live, who would you call? What would you say? And how would you say it? What would you regret doing or not doing in your life? There are questions worth considering. The clock is ticking and we don't always get a second chance in that moment. If you are inspired by Arden's story, please share the podcast and subscribe wherever you listen. I have more meaningful stories to share with you in just a moment.